This is the Horse Radio Network. Is it hot out there or is it just us? Summer riding ain't for the weak. On this episode, we'll share our favorite tips to stay cool in the tack, and we're talking to an animal communicator on how to better communicate with your horse. Thanks for tuning in. From Heels Down Mag, a podcast where horse pros chat about what's happening in the horse world over drinks. Welcome, Welcome to Happy, to Happy Hour. Hour. I'm Justine Griffin. I'm Jessica Payne. And I'm Ellie Wozniaka. Welcome to episode 99 of Heels Down Happy Hour. 99. 99. I cannot believe we've made it that far. Just gosh, we started and you were pregnant with the first baby. Remember with the that? first kid. I know. I can't <laughs> yeah. even believe it. Feels like a lifetime ago, to be honest. Seriously, we've been doing this a while now. Um, and listeners, thank you guys. We're going to have to do something fun, you know, for, for the next episode. For the 100th episode is going to have to be super cool. Yeah, absolutely. And if it makes you guys feel old, you guys started this when I was still in college. <laughs> okay, that makes me feel really old. Wow. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm excited um, for, for the next episode. You guys will all have to stay tuned to see what we're going to do. It's going to be super fun. This episode is brought to you by Purina. And so, Ellie, do you want to give us our drink this week? Sure. So it is a frozen gin and tonic. So all the fun of a gin and tonic, but mixed with a slushy. Uh, so you're going to start with your lime juice, freshly squeezed, or you can just buy the bottle like me when you're cheap and you don't want to buy limes. Um, then you're going to buy uh, your gin and, you know, a good quality gin. You're going to need your tonic water. And they add a little bit of cucumber for the ultimate freshness flavor. Um, so you'll want some of that. Simple syrup and ice. And all you're going to do is uh, squeeze some of your lines, slice the cucumbers, and add everything into a blender. And then blend it all till it's perfectly smooth. And then pour into an old-fashioned glass with a straw. Or drink it straight out of the blender. Whatever floats your boat. <laughs> that sounds really good. Minus the fact I don't really like gin and tonics. But our quarantine slash like best friends that have kids, I'm going to have to make these for them. Because it does sound really good. And they love gin and tonics. Oh, really? I, I just sounds like a great summer drink. I'm really into everything blended right now. Yeah, I'm going to have to like, I don't give really them a like cucumber, but I feel what? like I could do this without the cucumber. And instead with a little bit of mint, I feel like it'd be really good. Like, I think the cucumber would actually make it a bit better. Yes, I know. Cucumber. Yeah. I have like a vengeance against cucumbers. They just kind of freak me out. <laughs> Odd, okay. but okay. We'll, we'll explore <laughs> that later. <laughs> yeah. We'll go on from that. All right. What do you got for news, Jess? So it was a pretty impressive week last week. Uh, we've got a lot of big horse shows. One that just wrapped up with Bromont, where Jenny Brannigan took the top spot in the four-star long at the Mars Bromont. And it's good to see everything back up and running and having all these horse shows. Uh, the horse is a homebred of Nina and Tim Gardner's, who's a longtime supporter of Jenny Brannigan. So it's pretty awesome that she's had this horse its whole time and brought it up for a really cool win is pretty awesome. So there are a lot of good results. Lindsay Transl had second place in a really cool horse as well. It's a younger horse of hers that she's bringing up. So there are a lot of cool results that everybody could pull in last week. And then now going into Lemulin, we've got a lot of good horse shows that have come on and it's been fun to kind of watch and 
we were at try on. So we just kind of watched from the side. We watch live scores and everything to kind of see what's happening. And we'll do the same with we're back home this week, but watch Lemuelin. And I'm excited to see, I think we have three Americans going in the five star and Coleman has two in the four shorts. So we'll be cheering them on for Lemuelin. Yeah, that is exciting. What do you have, Justine? Okay, so um, this didn't happen this week, so it's not immediate news, but there's been a lot of drama going on in Michigan with the Traverse City's Horse Show series. Did you hear about this, Jess? Yes, yeah. So the Horse Show management had some issues um, with the local city township there in Michigan, uh, which basically came down to some zoning issues, I believe. And so there was a moment in time just before their summer series started on if they were going to have to delay some horse shows. And basically what the city was saying was the show has a special use permit, um, which allows the horse show to run. But it was at risk of being suspended if organizers didn't resolve a bunch of zoning violations that they said had to do with like traffic coming in and out of the horse show and dust and debris uh, that had been identified, I guess, the horse show season the year before. You know, obviously, this is a long-standing horse show. They run great series up there. I know plenty of people who travel every summer for this series. Um, so it was kind of sad to sad to see that this was an issue. But luckily, uh, the horse show management worked pretty hard with the city to get all of those issues under control. And the season began at the start of this month with their first week. And, you know, they, they've been doing the, they did the junior hunter national championships there. They did some FEI youth jumping and dressage championships there. So, you know, it's, it's a major stop for a lot of uh, people who are showing in a variety of disciplines. So I'm happy to see that they were able to figure that all out and fingers crossed that they don't run into problems going forward because I feel like quote unquote dust and debris just kind of comes with horse shows, right? You know, no. what can they do? <laughs> so what's going to happen next? So I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see, but you know, the horse shows are running again this year. Fingers crossed. They don't run into any more problems going forward. What about you, Ellie? What's going on? Okay. So I've got a big one. So it is about the TAC equipment changes um, for FEI. So on the horse, they published an article that was mostly an interview with the legal director for FEI, uh, Michael Wrench. And so basically, FEI has created a TAC and equipment group, um, and they're going to evaluate and look at the new kinds of TACs along with scientific information about said equipment to make new rules on what is allowed and what is not. So the group is going to be made up of representatives from each discipline, veterinarians, a legal team, and outside experts. Interested to know who those outside experts are. So the whole goal of the group is to aim to improve wellness and fairness and to enhance the image of the sport. Right now, Michael Wrench talks about there, there's no real consistency in equipment regulations and requirements. There seems to be a lack of transparency uh, when doing tech assessments. There's a lack of scientific basis on what equipment should and shouldn't be used. The rules are really rigid, uh, which doesn't accommodate for the new and changes in developments for tech and equipment, which can all lead to oversights with welfare of the animals and give riders an unintended advantage and tech related problems can threaten the social image of the sport. So they want to look at each of the existing rules because those have right the specific measurements and the specific like mechanical devices, 
but they don't provide any scientific evidence for the rules. So there are a lot of rules that we have that we don't even really remember why we have them. They're from 30 years ago. And, you know, are they even still relevant? So that's going to be the start of what the group's going to look at. They're then going to look at the lack of agreement in acceptable tax. So right now, even stewards who are at the same venue might have a different decision on what tech is acceptable and what is not. Uh, so they really want to clear up that consistency. And then the team is going to unify their main goal is to unify the disciplines and consider science, ethics, horse welfare, safety, and the image of equestrian sports, as well as performance enhancing technology. Uh, so this will happen over the next few years. They're going to review all the rules. So it's going to take some time because uh, there are a lot of rules. But in the meantime, they're actually going to create a, a TAC app like for your phone. So hopefully they're going to launch it in early 2023. And it's going to be an app where you can search equipment, get information on that equipment and see if it is permitted in FEI events. So you'll be able to search, for example, particular bits and spurs and see if they're allowed or not. Interesting. I feel like this is a great learning opportunity for a lot of people, right? But I, I could see how people could maybe be rubbed the wrong way. What do you think? Yeah, and I, I think it's going to be interesting, the whole different disciplines. Um, and how they handle Even it. like, exactly. Even like what is, you know, what a hunter thinks is an acceptable bit versus what a dressage rider thinks is an acceptable bit. There's a lot of differing opinions. So it'll be interesting to see how they bring that all together. Good point. Just a shout out to everyone who donates to us on Patreon. We really appreciate you guys supporting this podcast and supporting us bringing you these fun episodes. If you are interested in donating to us, you should go to Patreon slash Heels Down. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. And you should definitely check it out because we have some exclusives there that you won't get here on the podcast. All right, guys. So for this next segment, I was thinking about what are some products that are really important right now with like what's applicable to our lives as equestrians in June going into summer? And I know we've talked about our favorite, like some of our favorite products that we use in the summertime or in the sun, but it, I think it's just a great time to update that. Like if you found anything new or cool or things that you like to use that keep you cool uh, when you're riding or you're in the barn all day, because Gosh, we're only two weeks into June and I am dying. I'm not going to lie. Hot. It's, it's hot. It's so hot. And I'm like, I just feel like I'm I'm either getting old and I just can't take it anymore. Or I'm like, it's hotter this year than it was last year. Like I'm dying. So your thoughts. body wants you to move have... out of Florida. It does. It's no. so hot. It's, it's so, so hot, hot though. Well, the biggest thing that I found is I have one of the Charles Owen wide brim hats and it really does like, cause the visors are almost not that I wouldn't do a visor, but this is almost like even one that I don't have to take on and off. So that's been the biggest thing that I changed from last summer to now is that I have a wide brim hat and it's like really wide brim. So it's so nice. Like I don't have, and I'll put sunglasses on occasionally, but it covers my whole face, which is so nice. And that, that's probably one of the bigger things I changed that. And I still believe, I know it's crazy. Like I still wear long sleeve, like the sun shirts. So many people make them. Um, but I love like the quarter zip sun shirts that have the mesh on the underside. If mm -hmm. I wear a tank top or short sleeves, I feel like I'm hotter for some reason. Those are like my two big things that like to keep the sun off me. 
I'm with as, you though. I do feel hotter too in the full length ones. And I've been trying to figure that out. Cause I, I feel like I need to cover my arms, but I just want to wear, like, I'm really into wearing like workout tops right now. Oh, so, you know, if I'm in the workout top, I feel hotter. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Like when I, if I, I mean, I can't change into it, but if I get dressed in the morning and I'm in long sleeves, like one of the sun shirts, that's super lightweight. Like I feel better than if the sun is beating on to my like bare skin, even if I have like thousands of sunscreen on. Right. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm like that there. too. I'm with yeah. you there. So I like, like at the end of the day, I'm like, oh my God, I'm dying. But um, oh, in the end of the day, I'm like in a tank top by the end. But, uh, but I should. will say like, I, I love my EIS sun shirts. They're probably my yeah. favorite. And I feel like they're the lightest and they, they, they dry quick, but with the humidity in Florida. So for example, yesterday, yesterday I rode four horses and I started in the morning and I rode two and it was nice and light and breezy. And then it rained for like an hour. And then the humidity was terrible. And I felt like I was trapped in my clothes, like with just sweating and was just so wet from the humidity that sometimes the sun shirts, I hate that, you know, like I need to change my shirt. (laughs) I I mean, I definitely (laughs) change like six times throughout the day that helps, but I found like any kind of light leg, you know, kind of like a legging type summer riding pants. I just got a new pair from four horses and it's got the side pocket that I can put my phone in, but Mm -hmm. it's so light. It's lighter than my like workout leggings there. It's so nice. I just got a pair. Um, Catherine had it at the ride Equisafe booth. And so she's like, Oh, I found these new breeches that I think you'd like. Cause it's got the side pocket for my phone. Cause I never know what to do with my phone. And they are the lightest, lightest breeches. They're so nice. And I got so many compliments. They're super cute because they have a zipper and you can still wear a belt with them, but they don't look like they're as light as they are. Interesting. Okay. And that was, that was my other big, huge purchase of the summer is I probably need six more pairs of those. <laughs> See, what about I you, still Ali? wear those cheap Viridians, like the, the I ride on things, uh, the, the legging tight things yeah. that probably like I wouldn't wear in public because they like show all of the cellulitis in my thighs when I ride, but they are super light. Um, which See, but I, these are really contoured. Like. They still have like on your back. That's not just like leggings where you have like no contrast and stuff. It's got stitching. So it looks like it breaks up your butt and stuff. And then it's got yeah. stuff. So it's oh. like broken up and it look, and it's got front pockets. It looks like they're riding breeches. And they're just made Uh, super lightweight. So like I wear them at the shows, like the last two weeks has been hot as anything and try on. And I wore them the entire time. They were so nice. And Uh, like they, so they don't look like you're in your like gross leggings that you really can't go in public in and you need a (laughs) long t-shirt to hide everything. But these like I can wear with a belt with a tucked in shirt and look like totally appropriate still. Yeah, I mean, these are the ones that have like the elastic waistband, and yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. they're the they're the same ones I've had since middle school because they're so stretchy. So I'm like yeah. determined to like wear them until they bust out because I'm broke. Um, <laughs> but I really like those. But actually, the new thing that I found that I actually found out from our listener Amy, um, who also has MS, she sent me this link to this like cooling company, and it's actually this like it almost reminds me of like one of those like shaper mint things because it cuts down like underneath your bust, but it's basically like a 
a tight, like slinky type material, like the same material as like our braid slinkies. And then it has these like pouches where you slide these uh, special ice packs down the back of it. Um, oh, wow. And, and they stay cold for a really long time. So I can put that like, so I'll wear like an undershirt and then I can put that on and then like put like, you know, like a loose t-shirt or like one of the sun shirts on. And then I stay really cool. I think anybody can get them. Um, I got it through like a specific like MS program because he is really, really bad for MS. Like sometimes like I'll be like in the middle of a course and all of a sudden I can't see out of my right eye anymore. So staying cool is really important for me, especially when I'm showing and stuff. So I use that all the time at horse shows because I can just leave the ice packs in like our cooler and then take them out when I'm needed. I usually don't wear it in the show ring because I don't like how lumpy it looks under my show jacket. But like when I'm schooling and stuff, heck yeah, I'm wearing it all the time. Yeah, that's awesome. And I feel like it helps with my posture <laughs> because oh. I'm like, you know, thinking Keeps about the fact that like these ice packs are, yeah, the ice packs are on my back and sometimes they're a little cold, right? So I feel like I'm like lifting my chest up more, which is always important for me. Uh, not the best act here. Oh my gosh. Um, so I have a few things. Um, the first is a brand of sunscreen I really love. I actually read about this in the Spark a couple of weeks ago it's Sunbum. um it, it's not a new brand by any means but i just like uh you know i hate to wear a sunscreen that's going to make me break out or feel too like greasy and gross all day when you're already like out in the dirt and the debris of the barn you know they have a really great face sunscreen but then also like i use their all body sunscreen all summer and it's wonderful and then the other thing is i got a new pair of rockle gloves and they're mesh on the top, like they're mesh, like over your fingers on the top. Yes. Then they have the grip. I have seen for, those on the internet. I have. I had them. They're amazing. I they're a game them. changer. They're like really, really nice. And they're, they're so light and like, I'll be curious to see how they hold up. Like I haven't had them very long. That was my only thing. Like I'm going to destroy these. Just no, the problem is make sure your, um, Velcro doesn't get on them. So like, right. Velcro the, that's the biggest thing. That's how I tore them up the fastest. I got them in Aiken. I loved them. I need to get another pair because I'm going next week, actually. I'll stop in. Oak Manor has them. And they had, they're super easy, but they're that lightweight mesh. And it has like that kind of like whatever design over your fingers and stuff. But then the, um, just make sure you're where you clasp it still, the Velcro, as long as that doesn't get in, that's huge. And then they last longer. Mine lasted like two summers. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that makes a difference because, you know, I'm like, I'm looking at my hands now and I have like the sun tan line of my Apple watch and the sun tan line of my gloves and they're, they're just really nice and light. I like them. So, the, and I think they're UV tips. protective as well. I think they are too. Yeah. Yeah. So do you get like a weird grid pattern suntan like line on your hands or no? That would be my no. biggest question. Not no, yet. I didn't get any. Yeah, I didn't I get any. I haven't. I just have. Okay, so it's really gloves. small mesh. Mm-hmm. Like it's very light. Okay. It's like the mesh huh. of the undershirt of a yeah. sunshirt. Oh, almost. Like it's really light. okay. So it's, it's not like the, the crocheted mesh. It's not the crocheted mesh. So it's like super you. light, and it's supposed to be UV protectant the whole thing. So mm-hmm. it's like not supposed to be where sun's supposed to hit your hands. Yeah. Do those work with your like touchscreen? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I can't remember because then I get so bad. I like stop wearing them because gloves drive me nuts half the time. But I need to yeah, get another <laughs> pair so that like my hands aren't getting like even worse in the sun. 
Yeah, I mean, I've used them so far, like, for everything. Like, I'm out lunging horses. At, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. they're holding up so far. I've, and, I, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm on my phone with them, and I haven't noticed a problem yet. So, so if you guys have any summer tips of things that you love that keep you cool or worth sharing, you should definitely share them in our Facebook group. If you haven't joined yet, it's the Heels Down Happy Hour Podcast Lounge. And we have a ton of fun conversations there all the time. So we hope to see you. Level up your horse's performance this season with choices from Purina Animal Nutrition. From Purina Ultium Competition Formula to Purina Impact Pro Performance and everything in between. Purina has the right option for your horse, including supplements like Purina Super Sport Amino Acids Supplement, Purina Amplify High Fat Supplement, and Purina Outlast Gastric Support Supplement. There are so many choices for optimal nutrition when you choose Purina, all backed by science. Level up your performance this season, put Purina's research to the test. Ask for Purina at your local feed retailer today. All right, everybody. I'm very excited to introduce a guest on the show with us. Her name is Charlotte Chandler, and she is a professional animal communicator and medium. Charlotte has dedicated her life to living alongside animals, both as their teachers and friends, and she's bringing this level of work to clients. She's been around the horse industry for almost a decade, more than a decade, both as a show jumper where she competed internationally, and she also worked as a medical hospice caretaker for small animals within the shelter system. And right now she's fulfilling her own dream by working with a rescue horse, which uh, That sounds so nice, Charlotte. And uh, we're really excited to have you on the show. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Justine, for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I know. I feel like there's been lots of bobbles along the way. And the good thing is you're from Florida, so you understand with thunderstorms and trying to connect. But I'm, I'm so glad we're able to make this happen. Me too. I'm so happy to. And you know, I love this like weird summertime Florida magic that most people don't get to see because they come in the winter. So there's definitely some interesting things to deal with on the off season down here. Truly, there really is. (laughs) (laughs) So to start, I would love to just, if you could take us through what made you follow, you know, follow this type of work? What made you feel like, was this a calling for you or just tell me more about your journey? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. I think a calling is a great way to put it. It's always been something that's been a part of who I am since childhood. You know, there were definitely times where I was letting my family know that our dog needed to go to the vet, even though they couldn't say that there was anything wrong and then something would come up. So a lot of things like that, even from early childhood, but in terms of making it a profession as opposed to just something that felt like felt really a part of me. I didn't really second guess it. And I think it's that way for a lot of young people in so many ways. And it took me a long time to circle back, you know, until almost my thirties to taking it on professionally. A huge part of that for me was really stepping into the confidence of saying, that this is what's happening and I'm not worried about what anyone's thinking. And yes, I do talk to animals and I talk to animals who are dead and that's just who I am and how I 
contribute and what I can do for people and for animals in this lifetime. So I really, it took me a while to own it, but I worked with animals in just about every other way I could find in the meantime. And yeah, I grew up riding, doing show jumping, and I did that until my early 20s. And then I stepped away from that, ended up working in the shelter system with smaller animals. I've been a dog walker. I've always been really hungry to be around animals in any capacity that I could be. And really a huge turning point was about, I guess about five years ago, I just made the commitment really to, I think a huge part of it is making the commitment to practicing it just as you would anything else, as opposed to just hoping for the best and thinking, you know, this happens sometimes intermittently. I think a huge part of being an animal communicator is having the confidence to practice with other people. And I had a friend who works professionally and I set up a mentorship with her. And that's when I really started to figure out how to offer it as a service beyond something that just helped me in my own world or friends with animals who are nearby when I could pick up on things for them. And it's really just snowballed since then. And I've never looked back. It's, it's, I've had so many different lines of work in my lifetime. And this is just, you know, the one when people say like, doesn't feel like you're working. That's really how it does feel for me doing this. That's so cool. So Charlotte, when we spoke earlier before the show, something stuck out to me about just the way you described what you do that I I think is really illuminating. So you told me that you don't necessarily feel like this is a, a gift you have, but some sense of intuition that you found and you followed. I was wondering if you could explore that a little bit more. Yes, absolutely. I totally, yeah, it's, it's interesting because in this line of work, you know, people will often say, you know, what a gift or a blessing. And I think that that's beautiful, but I also think that it really, I think that the flip side of that is that it creates this idea that communicating with animals on it deep and full and even complicated level is something that you just have to be born with and that it's not something that you can develop. And I really, really, I know it's beyond really believing. Like I do know that we are all capable of this in whatever capacity, you know, just like any other skill, some people go on to be professional painters and some of us do it as a hobby and that's and all is valid and regardless of how far you take something it does take dedication and openness and an investment of time and one of the things about animal communication that i think the reason that there are not more people actively engaging in this in their day-to-day life is unfortunately there's this idea for so many people that it's just not even possible or it's not a reality. And so, you know, if you believed that 
being able to paint was not a reality, no one would. So at first, it's really about opening your mind to the idea that like, what if, what if I could hear my horse and letting yourself play with that and be open to that and experiment with that. And yeah, I think it's something that I really hope that more people become open to. It's something I would love to help more of my clients. And there are some that I do offer mentorships to. And it's so exciting to see people realize what is possible if you just allow yourself the time and the space and the space to get it wrong sometimes too, just like we would if you're learning a new discipline or anything else with your horse, there's always space that we make to be wrong. So I think that's part of it too. I love that. And and just to kind of build on what you just described there, I, I feel like it's not uncommon for owners of all kinds of pets, dogs, horses, to want to find new ways to ensure trust and communicate with their animals. And I'm wondering, do you feel, do you feel like what you do is an extension of that? And can you explain how the process works? Mm, Yeah, that's really well said. And definitely, I would say it's a direct extension of being able to build trust between you and your animal, whether it's a horse or a dog or, you know, cats, bunnies, there's nobody that I am not open to talking to, but it definitely is. And what that would look like in terms of a session and, and how trust can be built there. I mean, being able for you speaking specifically about horses. I mean, it definitely applies to all animals, but with horses, I find that one of the most essential, important points that I see come up again and again in readings is the importance of clarity. And so often almost all issues that I see come up between people and horses is a lack of clarity and a lack of understanding on both sides. And it's really hard to have trust when you're basically being asked to have blind trust. And especially in the case of our horses, a blind trust in us being in control of just about every part of their world and their day-to-day life. And so being able, giving them the space to ask questions of their person and get clarity on scenarios that they don't understand, it is, I mean, I've seen such incredible growth and progress happen on the other side of that conversation. And to answer your question about like what the session looks like, I do in-person and long-distance sessions, and the long-distance ones I do over Zoom, and both are equally... I mean, I mean, I, there's no... like It's not necessarily always better to have in-person. I love getting to meet my clients in person, but for instance, if there is a horse that's really reactive or nervous around new people, actually, we might have a stronger and more clear conversation if I'm not there with them, creating that anxiety for them in person. So there are times when I'll actually suggest that we meet over Zoom instead, even if you are local. But either way, I ask usually that I don't receive any information ahead of time is my preference. If it's over Zoom, I'll just ask for a photo and the animal's name ahead of time that I'll just pull up during our reading as a sort of anchor for my own mind. And 
I like to start the session again, like it's interesting as much as it's as a reading for people to be able to communicate specifics to their horses. So much of it too is about the horse being able to communicate their specifics back. And so I always like to start the session by allowing the horse to begin wherever they would like to sort of touch on anything that they want to share what they want about themselves to start. It's a great way for my clients to know that I'm definitely connecting with their horse, giving them confidence when they're hearing things that are just super on point and about what the horse is sharing. And it's also my way of respecting and honoring the animals and letting them know, you know, I'm not just barging in here with a bunch of questions or demands or intentions. And really this is a conversation for the animal and their person. And so I'll start it out by letting them talk about whatever they'd like. And then once the conversation's rolling, there's really nothing off the table on my end. I mean, people have asked every question I could possibly think of. And yet every session, there's still one I've never heard. And so I'm always excited to see what unfolds because for me, I am walking in blind. Like I have no idea if it's going to be a difficult conversation or a joyful conversation, but all of them are always really beautiful. So it's very exciting in that way. Oh my goodness. Could you give us some examples? I know I obviously with some anonymity here, but is there maybe something you've learned just from some of the questions owners have asked or wanted to know? Oh, so much. Let me think where to even start on that. You know, one thing that I have been, that excites me so much is how incredibly amazing horses are at suggesting their own solutions to issues, whether it be like a behavioral issue is the reason that we're meeting or there's something physical going on. I am like, always just so impressed at their ability to come up with incredible and inventive and often really accessible solutions. Like for example, there's a client of mine who has many, many Mustangs and she has this Mustang merit that is really adamant that she wants to be bred, wants to have a foal, but has a lot of specifics around how she wants that to look. She wants the breeding to be like live and in person, but she doesn't want to spend the night at the facility. And so in trying to figure out like how to make, how to meet all of these needs that she has and also actually pull it off. One of the solutions that she came up with was Um, because she wanted it, you know, obviously that all has to take place in one day. If she doesn't want to stay at the facility, we're going to need to know that, you know, today is the day. And so she suggested that there be like an exercise mat or really any sort of marker, but she wanted a specific marker in her pasture that she knows that she can walk up and touch in front of her person when it is the day. Gosh, and okay. she came up with that on her own. And so it's really exciting to be able to offer solutions that feel really good. And, and I mean, horses come up with things that are actually like so accessible. Sometimes they'll come up with things and we'll have to say, you know, that's not totally possible, but how can we make <laughs> this work? Um, but yeah, I love that they are very solution oriented and they're really good at compromise. And I would also say something else that like, I love to hear from them just as somebody who loves horses. And we always have this 
question, you know, like how, how much do they enjoy being, doing the things we like to do with them? You know, is it, is it really just that they like when we graze them and the rest of it's sort of just like for us? And I am like always just delighted when I hear from horses, how much they enjoy their relationships and their ridden work. And, you know, I speak with horses that are never ridden and then horses who have competed in the Olympics. And it's really interesting to see their different perspectives on their relationship with people and how, how they totally, you know, if they are offered the clarity that they crave, they can really thrive in so many different environments and in different tasks and partnerships, which really excites me to see and know that it is possible for them to be really happy and feel fulfilled by things that also make us feel that way with them too. Seriously, I I feel like that's a, a question we all have in the back of our mind, right? Like, do they enjoy the sport as much as we do, right? A hundred percent. I mean, the the question that I always, every session is so different, but every single session always, there are two questions that people ask and they will always ask, is my horse happy? And do they know that I love them? And I love that. I love that about people. I love that about my clients and I love to get to hear the answer. And I mean, I will say it, the the happiness one is interesting because animals sometimes have a different perspective. So some, some horses are just quite serious and they're like, happiness looks, can look different to animals than it does to us. And so that's something that I really like, I really, um, has expanded my understanding of different emotions is, is getting to see how animals think about the questions we have, like happiness. Interesting. Oh my goodness. So so what are the more common reasons you see owners who come to you? Is it usually they're trying to troubleshoot a problem that they're having where they feel like they're, they're not getting through to their horse or it's a miscommunication issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of my clients meet with me for medical issues, things that have been kind of a mystery or something that they want to better understand. And then also definitely a lot of behavioral questions, a lot of like miscommunication there, trying to figure it out. Like for example, on those ones, I have a client whose horse was talking to very clearly about how she felt like there was pain in her chest. And she so this this horse has a few different riders. She has an owner, the owner's children, and then also a trainer. And so the trainer had no problem with the horse ever. Perfect. Every time she rode her. And then every time the owner would go to ride the horse, it was sort of a disaster to the point where she couldn't even have her kids ride the horse. It seemed too dangerous. And I actually met with them a few times because they, you know... The horse was ta- kept circling back to this kind of annoyance of this pain in her chest. And the trainer find- actually just reached out to me the other day and was like, you will not. She was like, you won't believe it, but you will because you obviously said it. But I just realized what's going wrong is that every time I go to ride the horse, I'm not there at the same time when the owner rides alone. 
And I tack the horse up differently and I never ride her in a breastplate because she doesn't need it. And I just realized the owner always rides her in a breast in a breastplate. And as soon as they stopped using that, they had no issues with it. So sometimes there's it's it's just something as simple as that that just takes a while to like click really for people. And then in terms of like behavioral stuff, I mean, there was a rescued thoroughbred that I talked to recently and he was having trouble specifically. He was doing great with all of his groundwork, but he, it was a very specific color. I believe it was like blue and white striped poles. And it was like, every time he saw these specific poles, he like would just not understand. It was like, he forgot that he could walk over them. And she was like, he's fine all the time, but it's like, just randomly, like we cannot communicate. He will not just walk over this pole. And when I asked him about it, you know, it made perfect sense. He said that it looked exactly like what had been the barrier of the training track that he had grown up on. No. And he had so embedded in his mind from his original training that never should you ever step outside of those boundaries. You're absolutely to stay within those boundaries. So for him, when he saw that, the idea of stepping over it was against everything that he had grown up learning. And so it's really amazing like what comes up and how simple some of these fixes can be once you understand it from their perspective. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So why do you feel this is an important tool in connecting with the animal? I mean, do you feel like there are other ways to get about, to get to the same answer, or this is a unique way of, of reaching them? And, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely feel like it is an incredibly unique tool in terms of the depth with which we can understand where they're coming from. And I think that it gives us as their people such a greater and richer understanding of who they are as our partner. And so even, you know, let's say the horse who needed to be ridden without a breastplate, I mean, definitely I think you could find that solution many different ways. And even just by troubleshooting, you know, if I'm having an issue, let me just start by changing the tack completely. You could definitely find that answer, but I mean, it might take, first of all, it might take a lot longer. And I think something that comes out of even just an hour conversation and understanding that something like that is a possibility gives us as their people a a greater understanding moving forward of where we go mentally when a problem arises. And I think it can really give us as horse lovers a better foundation. Like when something is coming up, you know, not necessarily rushing in our minds to the worst case scenario, which is something I am guilty of myself too, because we just love our horses so much. And it's so easy to think, you know, either something is like terribly wrong or they hate me or I've done something terrible. And I think just realizing that there are so many limitless possibilities of what's going on, just like it is for 
any other person, that they're just as complicated and interested and unique as we are, I think is what makes it an incredibly unique tool. Huh. Wow. Okay. Well, I have learned a lot. (laughs) Charlotte, I just have one more question for you. I I wonder, are there some tools or skills you feel like we can learn on our own just as horse owners who, you know, who obviously care about our horses, things that we can do at home to better communicate with them? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I definitely do. And I also want to say, like, firstly, kind of circling back to the point of like, I, I think, I think people, and you included, like, I think we're all, I mean, you definitely are communicating with your horse on this level, whether you know it or not, your horse is very aware of it. <laughs> and I'm always like excited when I, when my clients realize like how much of these conversations have been going on that they just haven't really like had in their, in the forefront of their conscious mind. One of the best ways to practice doing something like this is I think giving ourselves a little bit more time, you know, that's something I have had to work on a lot is having some patience and some space and being playful with it. You know, I think maybe approaching it and asking your horse, like, you know, is there something physically wrong with you is a really big question to jump off, (laughs) jump off the deep end with. And I think that's the one a lot of us would start with, as opposed to starting a little bit smaller, thinking in baby steps of how we can communicate. I would also say, so, you know, for me, the way that the communication comes through, and again, we are all, we're receiving this all the time. It's just a matter of, of becoming sensitive enough to, to put words to it and to separate what you're receiving from the horse versus what you're receiving from yourself. But the way that it comes through for me is through all of my different physical senses. So I'll feel emotions. I will have actual physical feelings in my body come up tastes and scents for better or worse with animals. Sometimes the tastes that they bring through are not what you want to be having, but um, gosh, (laughs) it, it is really, it's, or, you know, sound all of that. But I think people are, you know, we're thinking of the movie version of like what that's going to be. And that we're going to hear a full sentence coming through in English from our horse. And it's much more, subtle than that. For instance, the way that taste would come through is more similar to, you know, if I asked you right now to like, you know, what is your favorite food taste like? You can in a way taste it, even though you're not actually eating it right now. So it's more similar to that. And so I think being open to these subtle communications that come through and something I recommend to my clients all the time, if you're practicing and you want to communicate something to your animal, I have two tips that I love. One is say it out loud because everything that I'm saying about these different senses that are coming through, every time we say something out loud, we are communicating on this broader level, even if we're not aware of it. So that's the simplest way. If you are not feeling like you can communicate 
without the voice. If you just say, you know, this weekend, we're going to go to a horse show and we're going to be staying there overnight and it's going to be awesome. And then we're going to come back home. If you say that out loud to your horse, you're sending them a mental picture. You're sending them the emotions that you feel about that. There's so much information coming through beyond just that sentence. And they can really understand that super well. And then I would also say one thing that I think is like a common pitfall, especially around behavioral issues, is that when we want something to change or there's a behavior that's not ideal, we picture it. We picture that our horse doing the thing that we don't want them to do. Like your horse always spooks in a specific corner. Every time you're riding past that corner, you are mentally picturing your horse spooking there. And what your horse is picking up is you basically telling them to spook in that corner and that something is scary there. Um, so you're, you're sending them the opposite message of what you really want to happen. So I think becoming more sensitive about like what we're putting out to them is a huge part of it for sure. Well, Charlotte, this has been super insightful and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Of course, Justine, it's been so much fun talking with you and you have such great questions. It's really fun to get to chat with you about it. We're going to have to bring you back on. I would love that anytime. All right, everybody. I'm very excited to introduce our guest this week. She's a well-known name in our podcast group uh, on Facebook. So Natalie Keller Reinhardt is an award-winning author of Equestrian Fiction for Adults. Uh, Many of our listeners are avid readers of Natalie's books, and she's been connected to Heels Down in various ways over the years. She's been a judge of the Heels Down Spark Awards, uh, but you probably know her, some of her favorite titles, which is uh, Grabbing Maine in the Eventing Series. After spending years as a professional in equine industries, ranging from breeding and racing to three-day eventing, Natalie is using her background to create realistic settings and characters for her novels. Hi, Natalie. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. So another thing about Natalie, uh, we both live in Florida. I know you're like just up the road in Orlando, right? So I've actually moved. And oh, okay. Yeah, I have a small farm in Alachua County now, which is north of Ocala. Gotcha. Very nice. Good for you. Thank you. So Natalie, obviously you're an author uh, and, and that's what people know you for. I wonder if, if, just to start us out, if you could tell us just the journey of how you published your first book. Yeah, absolutely. My first book really changed my entire life. I had been uh, living in the Orlando area at a small farm and I was writing a blog called Retired Racehorse Blog, which was very popular at the time. And along the way, I realized that I had developed a thick enough skin that I could finally see myself writing fiction that I would allow other people to read. Um, So I had written plenty of novels that no one had ever read before. And blogging sort of got me to the point where I could let people read my work and it wasn't going to freak me out if they didn't like it. So I started writing a novel and I eventually realized that I wanted to dig much deeper into horse racing, which is where I set the book. And eventually that led us to move to New York City, where my husband and I both got to work at Aqueduct Racetrack for um, a fantastic trainer couple. And I became an exercise rider. Uh, He became an assistant trainer. And we really just immersed ourselves in this crazy lifestyle for a good long while. 
And then we moved to Brooklyn and I focused on getting the book done. And he went back to working in publishing, which is his background. And the end of six months or so, I finally had a finished work. And I said, I can do two things with this. I can either send it to an editor who was going to want me to make it way less horsey and way more regular people oriented. I can take a gamble and self-publish this thing and see if I have enough blog readers out there to buy my book. And I went with the second one. And that is how I ended up writing Horse Books for Horse People. How cool is that? So when did you know you wanted to be an author? I know you mentioned your blog. And I feel like a lot of people use blogs as an outlet, whether you know writing is a passion or it's just a way to connect with other people through something they're passionate about. But did you know you always wanted to write about horses? Yes. 100%. I always wanted to write about horses. I have in one of these boxes in this topsy turvy house I just moved to a little hardcover from second grade that is a novel about a racehorse that I wrote. That's um, <laughs> literally, it's always just been horses and books for me. That's it. So you live in central Florida, which is basically a dream for horse people. How um, has that access to horses and the horse world shaped your career path? I would say, you know, spending most of my life in one of three places, one of which is Ocala, but also in New York and in Maryland, which has a big eventing scene. All of those three places absolutely gave me the ability to write what I write. I feel like I spent 30 odd years gathering material so that I could start spending more time behind my computer writing. You know, I've done everything that I write about, you know, in the Hidden Horses of New York, I write about horse racing and I write about mounted patrol in New York City and carriage horses in New York City. I have hands-on experience with all of those things. And the same goes in Ocala, I was able to experience so much. I moved there when I was 18. And I was able to experience eventing at an upper level and, uh, and getting into breeding and learning to start young racehorses and draft horses, miniature horses, you name it. You know, there's just, is a feast, you know, it was just like a, a buffet of horse disciplines and being able to immerse myself in all of those has just, that's all of the realistic uh, sort of richness that I'm able to bring to my books. I, I can't write about things I don't feel like I know intimately. So being in Ocala and the surrounding areas has been huge for me. I feel like that's definitely what makes your book so successful with the equestrian industry too, because, you know, you're not in a Western saddle jumping six feet, you know, it's, <laughs> it's realistic. Do you have any advice for those who have a passion for writing, but aren't sure what to do about it? Yeah. I mean, the best thing that you can do is just write and write and write again and understand that it's going to be years of work to be where you want to be. And it might be years of work before that is something that you want to share. The old publishing industry is filled with stories of people who were rejected for years uh, by publishers, you know, or by agents and their work wasn't good enough. And while that is very uh, subjective, depending on who read it, right? And what the market looked like at the time. There's still a lot to be said for writing a lot of really terrible stuff, learning from it, getting better at it and moving on. And then asking people to read it and tell them what you think. And and that's the hardest part, right? Is you have to get comfortable with other people reading your things. And I think most writers have a really hard time learning that part. 
I, you know, I still don't love getting criticism. I, you know, I have to get it. That's part of the job, but I don't, you know, I generally just, it still makes it hard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, I'll get, I'll get emails, you know, with notes and and I'll look at them and I'll go, well, this is wrong. Oh my God. I can't believe you would say this about my work. And then I leave it alone. And then the next day I go in and make the changes because it's all correct. (laughs) Of course it's correct. I just, the the day I receive it, I am not in a mental place to accept it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have such a strong fan base who seem to really resonate with your storylines. How do you end up coming up and developing the characters in your novels? The characters in my novels I swear they just swim into my brain. A lot of times I wake up from uh, from dreams and I'll have some just absolutely insane story that was running through my head. Like I was having this crazy dream the other night and I woke up from this absolutely like tearjerker of a romantic comedy kind of scene. Like it was straight out of, you know, the Nora Ephron you've got male sort of lineup of movies and oh my god this is so good so I wrote it down and then I sort of fleshed out this is all in bed on my phone right and then I sort of fleshed out like what I thought the circumstances were that led to this scene and then I looked at it for a while and I was like I can't just write another book with new characters I'm gonna lose my mind because I already have so many running (laughs) so I really quickly looked at my list of what needs done because I have a publishing sort of calendar. And I said, oh, I can turn these characters into these ones that this book already needs, this like work in progress. And I can make the storyline work for this book that needed something. So I just have to sort of shoehorn all of these characters into my work that's already in progress. Because I, what happens is I end up with a lot of series going and everybody wants more series, more series. And there's just not enough hours and not enough brain power to write that many series. I have to keep consolidating. Um, but it's a muscle, you know, like it comes with with practice. It happens. Because like, you know, you make it seem also that it's like almost this romantic view of a, being a full-time writer, that it makes it so easy. But do you care to burst everybody's bubble? Any tips or tricks or luck you're willing to share on like how to make it because obviously it is not that easy. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I am the first to admit I started in what was called the gold rush of self-publishing. I I literally, I published my first book in 2011 and like 2010 to 2013, a lot of people had bought this new thing called a Kindle and traditional publishers were still charging 15 or $16 for a Kindle ebook and people wanted free or 99 cent ebooks. And so it was extremely easy to get people's attention just by having a very cheap price point. Okay. And then I also had thousands of blog readers, which probably translated to, you know, 15 book sales, but I had evangelical readers, right? I had people who read what I wrote and were touched by it and started sharing it because it was doing something really, really different for the time. Now, if you are writing and you are ready to publish, I'm not going to tell you anything different than you wouldn't read in like a million indie publishing books, which is write in series, have three books ready to go right off the bat and build a mailing list. Like Those really are like sort of the golden pillars of today's indie publishing 
and probably traditional publishing as well, because it's not like you've got a million dollar marketing budget. You have to write something that touches people too. And that can hurt to write. You have to dig really deep. A lot of people will write a handful of novels that they, you know, they feel are well-crafted and are similar to what's selling well on the market. And then they're surprised when it doesn't blow up for them because they did everything right from a commercial standpoint. But it has to hurt a little bit. I really believe that. And I don't mean you have to sit at your desk and cry, although that can help. But every novel needs to have an emotional moment in it that people connect with and they go, oh my goodness, I understand this. Um, You know, it's just, that's why people use screenwriting as great guides for their novels because movies know that, right? They have that low point where everybody just wants to cry and then it's fine again and then you hit the ending. Books are really the same. That's pretty cool. Actually, I didn't know any of that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, and it sucks Um, because people will get mad at you, you know, sometimes too. We can be like, oh, you put my favorite character through the ringer again. I hear that all the time. And I have to explain, like, that's why you're reading it. But you (laughs) want to know what happens next. (laughs) You want to know what happens next, but you connect with that person because you've hurt too. Yeah. Nothing's, Nothing's a fairy tale. Exactly. Exactly. And you read for the fantasy but yeah, every but it still has to be realistic has, a bit. Yeah, every fantasy has a low point that makes the makes everything feel worthwhile. If that makes yeah, sense. yeah. Wow. Well, Natalie, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And so, if our listeners are discovering you for the first time, where can they find some of your books? Well, uh, you can visit my website, which is nataliekreinert.com. And I have a free ebook available for download there. There's always something. I have a book called Bold, which is a prequel to the Eventine series, which is my most popular series. So you can always get that for free and see if I am your cup of tea. And then my books are available on all retailers. And they're also available from libraries in ebook and paperback. And some series are also an audiobook too. So basically, if you just type my name into Google, you will find me and uh, you can decide which of my many series is right for you. (laughs) That sounds awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. All right, guys, it's time for Rose and Thorn. Who wants to go first? I can go first. I guess my Rose would be, my brother got married a couple weeks ago out in um, San Luis Obispo, California, and it was beautiful. We had so much fun. I love a good wedding, but they picked a beautiful venue and the backtrack was like the mountains and it was just good to see everybody. A bunch of my cousins came out and that was definitely my rose this couple weeks. Like it was fun to spend family time and our kids got to see, you know, everybody and it was, it was beautiful. So that is definitely my rose is that my brother got married and it was a lot of fun and my thorn would be, I don't really unfortunately have a good thorn because it's kind of been a really good thing. But the thorn is that just like when the projects keep coming at this farm and the heat, like I gardened for, I didn't garden. I did weeding for about three hours. And I think <laughs> yeah, that is like going to be the death of me. <laughs> so oh. it's like, it's so much. You'll fun. have to get a goat. But it's like, I, I don't know if the goat <laughs> would eat that part. The I goat think- would eat everything else. It's like the landscape around the True. barns get, you know, the weeds. So then you have to pick them. And I feel like I did 6,000 
squats today. Oh, yeah, but hey, it's a good workout. Down. It is, but I'd already ridden the Peloton not knowing how bad of a workout that was going <laughs> to be. So I think that's my thorn is that, you know, it's always amazing. And I'm super grateful to own this place and everything. But then you're like, wow, I really did not want to do that. It's <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. But I think my back will appreciate it tomorrow when it gets a hot second of not doing squats to get weeds. <laughs> uh, what about you, Ellie? Um, so actually my rose is, is twofold. So I am taking Berkeley, uh, this coming weekend to a, uh, jumper derby at a winery up in the Finger Lakes. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited. I've never, they've been doing, um, um, these derbies at the vineyards in PA for a while, but this is their first one in New York, which is crazy that it's the first one that I've heard of when I live in Pennsylvania. Um, but, uh, so I'm excited. Uh, it's going to be like a big thing. My my sister is going to come. My mom's going to come, and we're just going to kind of have fun. I'm I'm only doing the point eights because I figure that way, if I get drunk, I'll be okay. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so I was like, that's probably the best decision. I was like, I probably shouldn't drink, but I probably will. So at least at that height, I can hold on to Maine, and and Berkeley can do that with his eyes closed. <laughs> so I figure, perfect. But in uh, respect to that, I took him off property today, uh, this morning, and took him to actually where I went to school. And I rode him in a bigger arena since my arena is small uh, and really let him open up his step and stuff. uh, And that was fun. But the other part of my rose is that the day after the derby, Matt and I are going to a wedding that's uh, like almost on like the Canadian border. But since my mom and my sister are going to be here, they're going to watch all of my animals. So Matt and I are actually going to spend a night away from home, which hasn't happened since 2018 together. Anyway, Um, we've spent like, you know, if he goes somewhere, I stay home or if he go, I go somewhere, he stays home. Uh, This is the first night we spent together away from the farm in four years. So that's going to be interesting. I probably won't know what to do with myself. I'll probably be checking the horse's stall cameras and like (laughs) me, even though they'll be outside. Well, I feel like, Someone needs to send Matt a long text message about how he needs to really take advantage of this opportunity of what's coming up. Yes. Am yes. I am I coming on too strong here? But I feel like, come on, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> it, I think it's, it's perfect. Only, it's only been like longer. Yeah, it's been a long time, Matt. Cough, cough. Um, no, I wish he could hear me. He's, uh, he's working on hay right now. Um, <laughs> but so the downside is my thorn is that one of my cats has diabetes. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm sorry to laugh. I'm sorry to laugh. It's it's okay. It's it's not her fault. Um, she was a really fat cat in the shelter. So, you know, even though I've got her down six pounds from when I got her, uh, it was not enough. So now I have to give a cat insulin twice a day, oh which also means I really can't go anywhere because they have to, they're supposed to be at the same time. So I have to train my mom and sister when they get here on how to do the cat's insulin. Yeah, which means that I'm glad my hotel is pet friendly for Saratoga in August because I might have to bring her with me because I don't know who else will do the insulin because Matt is not going to do it. (laughs) So, yeah, (laughs) leave it to me to have a diabetic cat. (laughs) What about you, Justine? Um, so my rose is that Monday I leave to go to Oslo. I'm really excited. 
My husband has a work conference there in Norway and um, we're making a whole trip out of it. So we're going to spend some time in Oslo and spend some time in Copenhagen and also Stockholm. That's two- super fun. I know. I'm really Hot- glad you said Norway because I did not know where you were <laughs> talking about. <laughs> the like, more you know, awesome. huh? <laughs> and the highs there right now are like in the 60s. It's going to feel amazing compared to the, you know, face melting temperatures of Florida right now. But yeah, really looking forward to getting away. Um, the bittersweet thorn is that Mikey's been off so far this summer. We're doing some shockwave. I know we've, I've talked a little bit about like his on and off lameness so far this year. He doesn't have any new injuries. He just has some chronic old soft tissue stuff from when he was a racehorse that we're just trying to see if we give him some time off and do the shockwave, if that will let him come back a little bit stronger in the fall. And we might not be dealing with the on and off lameness again, you know? So it's kind of been a bummer to not be able to ride my own horse, but you know, the summer is a great time for to give him a break and he really loves this new barn we're at. And so he's just having a ball on summer vacation. And, um, and I have very generous friends and a very generous trainer who's, who's sharing a ton of horses with me. So I'm, I'm like riding more now than I have when, you know, Mikey's like was fit and we were competing this year. Um, like I, am sore all over constantly because I'm just riding so many different horses. So in all different types, like I'm riding horses at the dressage barn, but then my show jump trainer has made like a ton of horses available for me. It's been really, it's been great. Um, I've been taking some lessons on his grand prix horse too, which has been fun and interesting and very different for me. So it's a bittersweet thorn, but if there was a good time to go on a long trip, it's now right. Well, he's just sort oh, of for sure. Out. So yeah, that is my rose and thorn. All right. So we do have a mailbag from Stephanie who posted this in the Facebook group. And Jess, obviously, I think you are a great person to answer this for her. So Stephanie was asking, what does it look like to create a training schedule when you're eventing? She says she knows all horses are different, but is there a specific order for how you decide when you're going to, you know, work on the flat with dressage work versus jumping and conditioning versus hacking? Like, how do you set up your week and how does that differ depending on the horse and the level that they're at? So depending on the level they're at, obviously, if they're going the lower levels and they don't really need to gallop or do a bunch of trot sets, then that can just be like one day a week. And then it doesn't have to be as structured. Then honestly, I'd base it on if you're in an arena and you can jump whatever days, but maybe you're not, or your footing's harder than base it based on the weather. So I would like look at it. And if you had a really good day and you needed to go on a trot set and you had a lot of rain and it's not hard, then use that the time to get out of the arena. But if you're going up the levels, most of the time you have a trainer and stuff like that, and they kind of have you kind of in a schedule. But for us, particularly when they're going preliminary and above, they canter on Tuesdays and Saturdays. And like I said, we'll depend on if the ground's really hard or we haven't been able to like get water on it or whatever else. We'll kind of change it up or if they're at a show. But generally speaking, they'll gallop Tuesdays and Saturdays. They'll flat on Monday, canter on Tuesday, flat on Wednesday, jump on Thursday, flat on Friday, canter on Saturday, hack or walk on Sunday. And so that kind of just is the gist of how we kind of get the big guys going. But for the little guys, then we alter it that 
not everybody's caring on the same day or not everybody's going for a trot up the hill or not everybody's jumping on the same day. So then Doug doesn't have to jump everybody and we can kind of stagger within the barn. So my advice to you is if it depends on your kind of what your horse needs, like if it needs to jump two days a week or you need two days a week, maybe those two days a week kind of replace a fitness day because you're not really going up the levels. So you can do cavalettis or bounces or, you know, poles on the ground and use that as a jumping day and then do a proper jumping day at height. So you can kind of still get your eye and your horse in the right canner, but actually not jumping its legs off. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like me being a lower level rider, like, I don't know. I just kind of make it up as we're going along. For sure. And this doesn't really matter. (laughs) I mean, you know, one day you're like, oh, I really was not that good on the flood. I probably need to flood again tomorrow or vice versa. I really didn't see a distance today. So maybe I should do canter poles tomorrow. And maybe I can, you know, cause not every day is perfect. There's days that I get out there and I'm like, might need to jump another horse because that wasn't very good today. You know? So it's kind of use yourself and really evaluate yourself and your horse and see what you really need. And without having to jump, you know, three foot every day, you can do it by poles on the ground. You can set up exercises where you have to count strides in between and making sure you get those strides. And that really can help you and, you know, the tools in your toolbox to kind of get better without having to really jump a lot of your horse's legs off. There you go. I think that and sounds great. I would great. totally suck. I would totally suck as an eventer. <laughs> Cause I'm like getting ready for a horse show. I'm like, I rode him for like a solid 30 minutes today. I think I'll trail ride tomorrow. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. I'm like, he'll, he'll get tomorrow off. You know, like I just, yeah. uh, I think I've ridden Berkeley maybe like 10 times since the beginning of the year. No, no, it's probably more like 15. But yeah, but yeah, it's, he doesn't really need more than that. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that yeah. you see that. Cause even as uh, somebody who's done a variety of disciplines. I feel like for eventing, the majority of what I do is the flat work. Yeah. Like I'm constantly, and I might jump once a week or once every two weeks. But when I was like prepping for whack and was like really focused on like the three foot hunters, I, ha- I had to jump because like you yeah. had to get that feel out and you had to like, you just had to, you couldn't swing and miss in the middle. Exactly. So I just ha- like you had to do the reps. I probably jumped the most when I was doing the hunters than anything else. Yeah. And it really depends. And that's why, and it can change week to week. And so that's why I really say like, listen to your horse and listen to yourself and what your weaknesses are and kind of keep working on those more than just, oh, I, I'm doing it because that's the better schedule. So thanks, Stephanie, for the question. If you guys want to ask us a question that we'll tackle on air, you can always send us an email by going to hello at heelsdownmedia.com. And again, you can join our Facebook group by going to the Heels Down Happy Hour Podcast Lounge. And if you want to hear more from us, you can subscribe to the Heels Down Spark. You could do that by going to bit.ly slash spark by HD. We want to say thank you to our partners this week, Purina. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.